0: Hello and welcome to episode 37 of The Thing About Golf. Golf Australia magazine's eternal search for the answer to that most confounding question. Why do people get so hooked on this ridiculous game? My name's Rod Murray, and it's my great pleasure alongside Scottish golf writer John Huggan, to bring you these interviews with some of the most interesting people in the game. Some are famous, like Huggy's guest on this coming episode, though many are not. All, however, have one thing in common an unbridled and perhaps even unhealthy fascination with the game of golf. Huggy joins me now to introduce his special guest for episode 37. And Huggy, first things first, welcome. But would it be fair to say that Nick Price might be the best player we hardly ever talk about anymore or certainly don't talk about enough?
1: Well, that, that's certainly true. But I think he, he has to take some of the blame for that. I mean, he, he kind of um, walked away um, earlier than... And certainly I would have liked him to um, he stopped playing in the Open I think in 2005 which is a long time ago and he, he kind of just dabbled in the, the senior tour for a bit and then you know, for his own reasons he, he kind of walked away from it he retired from competitive golf although I think he still plays in the father and son Jamboree at the end of the year in December I think he played with his son uh, just a couple of months ago so he's not gone completely and obviously he's had, um, maintained a profile with uh his involvement in the President's Cup, he's been non playing captain, I think, three times, and uh, he's on the USGA Executive Committee as well. So um, he's still involved in golf, but we we don't see him playing much, which is, I, I share your, your grief at that. I think uh, I miss watching Nick Price hit the golf ball. And, and what a
0: magnificently different golf swing. Just the, the pace of that swing was always just such a talking point, wasn't it? Because so much uh, unlike the rest of it. So he's not not as visible perhaps as he once was. Though, Huggy, you're quite familiar with him, and we get that sense in the chat. You did a lot of work with him in your Digest days in, as instruction editor there.
1: I did, yes, back in the day, um, which is, what, 25 years ago that I'd left Golf Digest in the States now. But um before that, for the eight years I was there, for most of that eight years, I was, amongst other things, um, Nick Price's ghostwriter on the instruction pieces. So I I would got to know Nick pretty well. Um, I spent a lot of time at Lake Nona, which is where David Ledbetter was based at the time, and uh, he was coaching Nick and Nick Valdo at the time. So I was down there just almost every
0: week, as it, it felt like, um, spending time with those three guys. Just to date where we are. <laughs> That's where the L- yes. LGA are flying this week. Indeed. So, now Huggy, what I wanted to ask you, in light of all that, Nick Price seems like a good guy. Not all who seem like good guys, good guys actually are. Is he?
1: <laughs> well, Nick Price is is one of the few exceptions to the rule of you know the, the guys who've been the the best players in the world, ranked number one in the world since since you know the Second World War. See, the, they've all had an edge to them. I mean, I think you almost have to have that mm-hmm. to be as good as they are, but. There are exceptions, and Nick Price and probably Sandy Lyle, and maybe Rory is is another one. Uh, Nick Price, I mean, he just he just behaves like a normal human being who happens to be one of the greatest golfers we've seen in the last fifty years. Um, but that's him. I mean, he's just he he remembers everybody's names. I remember once <clears throat> speaking of late Nona, I was standing chatting to him, and he was looking beyond behind me. At somebody who'd just arrived, and he's going, "Oh, Jim or Dave or whatever his name was," and and they turned out it was the the FedEx delivery man. <laughs> you know, Nick Nick Price knows everybody, and he treats everybody the same, which is again just what normal people do, but. He's not a normal person when it comes to golf, so that that makes him the exception in my mind.
0: Yeah, look, they get thrust into a world that's not normal, don't they? In fairness to all of us, yeah. I'm not sure how I would deal with it either, but that's not a normal world to live in if you're Greg Norman or Tiger Woods or Jack Nicklaus and <laughs> people fawning over you all the time. Yeah. I think I'd love it, Huggy, I'll be honest with you. I'm never going to get there, but well, that would be fantastic. Y-
1: you, you've always been the centre of your own universe, Rod, you know
0: that. So. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. He, of course, came from quite humble beginnings as well, Nick Price, did an, an actual stint, in war. Now, he doesn't talk about it a lot anywhere, and he doesn't talk about it a lot in this interview. One can only assume that must explain some of that down-to-earthness that he's retained, I would think.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's seen the, you know, the, the dark side of life, if you if you like, think, when he was in, I think he was in the Air Force, the Rhodesian Air Force. Um, like most people who've been involved in wars, I'm, I'm not sure it's his favourite subject. No. Um, and so I kept away from it to, to a large extent, but, because um, I've talked to him before about that and he was never very keen so
0: it's uh i don't blame him i no. mean who wants to talk about that stuff absolutely so well, can only imagine but I, I guess the point being it gives him a real perspective on golf, perhaps, that some of those others we just mentioned maybe haven't had uh, necessarily through life. So that might explain. Well, he's a terrific fella. Uh, certainly, that's mm. what comes through from this interview. Most enjoyable interview. Is there anything that you didn't get to with Nick that you want to quickly tell us now? Because you always forget something. You did it with Callahan, you always forget a story or something. Is there anything you missed with Nick, or is it all in here? Because it's a long one. Um,
1: it is, yeah. I mean, I think we pretty much covered everything, although uh, it the best interviews you. We could have kept going, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but I had my list of questions, and I would pretty much ticked everything off the list by the time we got there. But uh, he was—he's very engaging. I mean, he's—he's such—he's just such a nice guy. I mean, that—that I that sounds awfully bland. It, you know, nice is not the the most you know evocative sort of um, <clears throat> this, the adjective you can use about anybody. But uh, he was, yeah, he's just a terrific guy to talk to. You could—you could see yourself. And hopefully that will come across in the interview. could Everybody who's listening to it could hopefully see themselves sitting at a table with a cup of coffee you know, or whatever and um, just having a chat with Nick. And a
0: bit like your last guest, Laura Davies, I reckon he'd jump up and head to the bar when it was his shout. He's Absolutely. Tough, he'd he? be
1: first there. Yeah, yeah, he'd
0: be first there indeed. Well, anybody who hasn't seen or isn't familiar with, if you're a bit younger and you haven't not really familiar with Nick Price, which might be all your fault, go to YouTube and have a look. Just perhaps one of the best ball strikers ever. Huggy, would that be fair to say?
1: Yeah, well, I, I kind of I said this, to him. I think, in the interview, that it's a very simplistic analysis, mm-hmm. but um, for a while there, for a few years, Nick Price was the best ball striker in the game, mm-hmm. uh, quite clearly. For about four or five years, he found a way to putt and made himself the best player in the world. And then after those four or five years, he just went back to being the best ball striker <laughs> again for right. a bit. So. That's a very simplistic way of looking at it, but that's basically
0: what Nick's career was. You could stand on the range and listen to him hitting balls rather than watch, couldn't you? That would be a thing of beauty, Beautiful, the the compression. Fabulous stuff. Well, Huggy, you've done a great job with it. We better let the people get to it now because there is plenty of it, as I said. Thanks for joining us today, and let's everybody enjoy Nick Price.
1: Nick Price, thank you very much for uh, being a part of the the thing about golf podcast. Um, It's going to be nice to hear your voice again. It's been a while since we've seen you in a – competitive environment. What are you doing yourself these days? Thanks, John. Good to be with you.
2: Well, um, I basically retired from active uh, playing back in, or tournament play back in 2015. I had um, some issues with my uh, left elbow for a couple of years. Uh, 2012 it started, and uh, 2013 I ended up having surgery. Um, I tried to rehab it for a while. Um, came back and started playing toward the end of 2013 after being out of the game for about uh, almost 14 months and uh, ended up uh, coming back and just did not play at all well. Um, I struggled with consistency, accuracy. I was hitting it short and crooked and, you know, (laughs) all the bad things. And I, I persevered for about a year and I came back from one event and I just said to my wife, Sue, I said, you know what? I think it's time to hang them up. So my tournament golf now is uh, the father-son event, which is the highlight of my my golfing year, Yeah, uh, where I get to play with my son, Greg. And, um, you know, we, we're not really as competitive as some of the guys are, but Greg only started playing when he was in his sort of early 20s. So um, this year we
1: came 14th, which for us is really good. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it, it's great fun though.
1: Yeah, all those things you just described don't sound anything like the, the Nick Price that we, we knew and loved when you were at the top of the game. I mean, I, can see, I can tell that must have been very frustrating for you.
2: It was, you know, and people often ask me, you know, do I miss playing competitively? And I said, yes, I miss playing competitively the way I knew or the way I could play. Hmm. But um, And my game's come back a little bit now, but, you know, um, you don't want to be out there and playing for, you know, 20th spot or, 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 or you know, the trying to finish in the top 10. For me, that's not what golf's about. Um, To me, golf was about
1: playing well and having the ability to win. Was that why you, you, I'm just looking at your record in the last few days, um, you stopped playing in the majors, uh, certainly the Open. I mean, you haven't played in an Open since 2005. Um, I think, you know, I speak for myself. I mean, that was a disappointment because I always enjoyed watching you play. But what was your mindset? uh, What was behind that decision? So I'll tell you right now, um, when
2: 19, my first Open Championship was as an 18-year-old at Carnoustie in 1975. And I qualified for that uh, at St. Andrews on the old course. So mm-hmm. you can imagine an 18-year-old amateur um, coming over from Africa and and qualifying. I'd played in a few of the amateur events, you know, around the, the Brabazon and the British amateur and a few others around uh, the Brabazon and around uh, – uh, you know England, and anyway, I took, the, the end of my trip was basically kind of uh, qualify for the for the Open at, at uh, well that's in Andrews, but the Open at Carnoustie, yeah. and you know I got through, and I just had a you know it was a it was a life changing experience for me. That's all I can say. I didn't realize uh, even in those days, you know, how much the Open meant to to people and, and to me. I mean, I, I understood the history more when I when I was there. And of course, from then onwards, you know, I, I try to watch it every time it was on television or we, we never had live TV in those days. So the, a lot of the cigarette companies back in Zimbabwe used to come around with the 16 millimeter promotional films of the Open Championship right. brought to you by, you know, whether it was Piccadilly or whatever, Benson and Hedges, whatever the, the, the cigarette company was at the time. And uh, we'd always have a couple of showings at the club, you know, on a Friday and a Saturday evening. And, you know, we always wanted to go and watch it. But anyway, um, I felt in 2005 that my game and having a chance to win the Open Championship had gone. Um, I didn't think my game was strong enough. I wasn't hitting the ball far enough. Um, You know, I didn't get it or take advantage of the equipment when it came along. Uh, You know, and uh, I played with Tiger in 2000 the first two rounds at St. Andrews when he won. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this, there was no doubt I was 43 at the time, and this guy just brought a different game to, <laughs> to golf yeah. that, you know, most of us couldn't match. Um, but anyway, uh, 2006, I, I just decided, you know what, I didn't want to take up another spot for someone who may be able to enjoy that experience, whether he was an 18-year-old amateur or a club pro who makes the qualifying Uh, I just didn't think it was fair that I was going to go there and just smile all week and, you know, make, probably miss the cut, have a few three putts in, uh, you know, (laughs) that's not the way I wanted to play golf. And I I can understand guys who perhaps live in the UK, you know, who want to go and play, that's fine. But, you know, to make a trip over there and and that, I I just, I I felt it was best that I just sort of retire. And so I've taken a bit of stick from it, you know, over the years from people, my friends in England, but I think once you explain to them the, the you know the enormity of the moment or qualifying for a youngster
1: uh, mm. for the Open Championship, I, I'd rather give that spot to one of those guys you know who could really enjoy it. Yeah, well, well I think everybody listening to this will understand that perfectly. But the, the other side of that coin is, of course, that you deprived us of watching you, you know, in your <laughs> your golden years, if you like, because uh, you know, it was you were always. I speak for myself here. You're always one of my favourites to watch, and I think uh, I, I was disappointed when you stopped. And but you know, having, having heard your explanation, you know, I, I get it completely. But still. it was a tough decision, you know. But I, I think you know now
2: they're going to do that. Uh, what is it? The 150 yeah. ce- 150 year celebration next year? I think it is at St Andrews, and they're going to have a four-hole. Um, you know, uh, little exhibition match, yeah. which I would be happy to play in because last time they had it, I had a really bad elbow and uh, I couldn't play. Um, so it'll be fun to do that. I'm really looking forward to that. I just hope by, you know, this time next year that this whole Corona, yeah, COVID thing has has
1: is under control. Yeah, well, let's hope so. Let's hope so. Um, yeah, you mentioned there, um, you know, the fact that you were you brought up in what was then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued to hear. I've, I've listened to enough of Tony Johnston's stories about uh, growing up there. Um, I know he's a great friend of yours. Uh, what, what was a, a, a boyhood in colonial Rhodesia, if I can call it that, like? Um, very simple life, um, probably very similar to,
2: you know, the, the city I grew up in, which is now Harare. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know it wasn't a huge city Um, it was probably comparable to sort of living in a in a a small or a a small town in England Um, but with better weather it was obviously (laughs) with a lot better weather that was the greatest thing about there. was you know we had 365 days of sunshine and you know you probably had to wear a sweater on maybe you know, 50 days, 40 days of the year, which was, yeah. you know, in the morning in winter when it was pretty chilly. But once it warmed up, you know, you played golf in short. So it was t- terrific for sport. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you played rugby, cricket, golf, whatever it was, uh, it was y- you could play it year-round. And, you know, I started off catting for my brother. He invited me with uh, three of his friends, uh, two of his friends, sorry, who had bought a, uh, a uh, second-hand set of clubs. In, this was 1965 so yeah. uh you know we were, what's that uh 18 years or well, 20 years since world war ii ended yeah. and these clubs were seriously from like just post second world war <laughs> <laughs> they were there were probably 30 clubs stuffed into this canvas bag that had a rope um a rope strap that some guy had just tied on there and i think these guys ended up paying like In those days, 12 shillings and sixpence for this whole set. So they split it three ways. And because my brother was seven years older than me, he said, oh, you know, don't you want to come and play golf? And I said, sure. Little did I realize that I was going going to be the caddy, that I wasn't going to get a golf ball or anything. But (laughs) So I ended up, and that's how I ended up starting. We snuck onto this golf course a couple of times, and then we got caught by one of the members. And he said, oh, you know, there's junior golf programs here. You guys don't have to sneak on. And that's how it all started,
1: really. How, how quickly did it become clear that you were you know exceptional? Oh, well originally, John I'm, I'm left-handed, so
2: if I, ah. if I play cricket, I'd bat left-handed right. and there was one left-handed club in this bag and you can imagine back in the '60s, left-handed clubs were very hard to come by. yeah, yeah. and so I bashed my way around <laughs> with this uh, with this five iron. Uh, it was a Robert Forgan five iron made in St Andrews. Right. Yeah. And, and it had one of those plastic coated steel shafts. Anyway, this old leather grip. And I, I beat, you know, that club to death over the you know sort of four or five times that I started. And then my brother, you know, he said, Listen, you can't get left-handed clubs here. They they you know, they're very difficult to find. So I switched around at probably, you know, just like uh, probably about ten, eleven years old, and I had my left hand below my right, where yeah, I can't it. Yeah. yeah, we all do and that. And I played yeah. like that. Yeah, I, I played like that for a while, you know, from, from driver all the way through. And then eventually I changed, you know, to that, so uh, to a, a standard grip. And uh, I suppose when I got to about 15, I was starting to get some uh, success in at home mm-hmm. as a junior. Um, and we played basically because during our school holidays, we had year-round school there, three three uh, terms. Um, it was something for us to do, something for us to get together with our buddies. It was something that we didn't have a schoolmaster or a manager or, you know, uh, looking over us. And it, it was entirely up to us. And it was, it was relatively, I mean, it was very cheap in those days. It used to cost me a dollar a year to be a junior member, and it was five cents to play 18 holes in. Two and a half cents to play nine holes. So, as kids, we would just go around and round and round. It was nothing for us to play fifty-four holes or sixty-three holes in a day. Um, we carried our own bags. We had trolleys. You know, it was just a question of how many golf balls did you have? Yeah, <laughs> you knew you were going to lose a bunch. Um, but it was fun. I mean, we didn't even think about professional golf. There was a professional tournament in our country that we used to go and watch. But you know, the money was so bad. I mean, you. You you had to win almost every tournament in those days on the secondary tours to make a living.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and yet um, so Zimbabwe at that time, I mean, or Rhodesia as it was, I mean, they produced an incredible group of really good players round about your age group. I mean, you're just one of about half a dozen that I can think of.
2: Yeah, we had a core of really good amateurs ahead of us.
1: Um, some older guys who
2: uh, played, uh, guys like uh, Bob White, um there were just a, a, a lot of guys who uh, were really good players and single-digit, uh, low single, one-handicaps, plus-handicaps, scratch players. And so we sort of learned a little bit from them. But um, uh, George Harvey came along, uh, who was an outstanding amateur player um, in our country, and he set the bar, really, for a lot of us. He started shooting numbers around the golf course, um, that we just, uh, I mean, we were amazed. Uh, When he played well, we all played for second place. And uh, that was probably when I was about 15, 16. uh, And and George was probably in his, I would say, early, mid to late 20s at the time. Um, And he dominated amateur golf in our country for a long, long long time. And guys like Teddy Weber came along, then Mark McNulty, who's obviously a little older than I am. Mm -hmm. Um, and Dennis Watson, you know, there was sort of like a, there was was just a chain of the guys coming out. But it was the junior golf program that did it there, because we played you know, Monday to Friday, weekday mornings, we weren't allowed to play on the weekends, Um, we weren't allowed to play in the afternoons at a lot of the clubs, but Monday morning we would play at one course, Tuesday at another, Wednesday at another, and we'd have this sort of little 18-hole, each one was 18-hole stroke play, and you had a little golfers passport, and if you Shot four under your handicap, you get immediately cut two shots on your handicap. So <laughs> the big thing for us was every day, you know, at the end of every uh, holiday was, was to try and get your handicap down as low as possible. And so uh, it, it, was, it was very competitive, um, and we played on good golf courses, and, uh, you know, we had some fantastic athletes. I mean, uh, yeah. guys who like Mark was a – Mark McNulty was a fantastic squash player, um, uh, you know, Dennis Watson, he played rugby, we played cricket, uh, all of us did, you know, we played some sport that was m- outside of golf that was important to us. And so, uh, w- most of us had good ball sense and, uh, you know, easy access to these golf courses, which, you know, some were, we had two or three really good ones and the rest were kind of okay. Um, I would sort of condition wise, put them at an average, you know, sort of daily fee course. Yeah. But the, the simple fact we had access was just amazing. Um, so well, it was a great time. It was really a simple time. We played, you know, as much golf as we got. Every day we would play during the school holidays. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, it, it so we it's delic- worn out,
1: we go fishing. yeah that was fantastic yeah Yeah. it really was yeah Uh, what age were you when you decided you were good enough to turn pro and and i know you followed the kind of what was the certainly what was back then the the traditional route for people who not lived in america they they went to the european tour i know you went there first i mean what was run me through the decision making process there well i had
2: no idea to be honest i didn't know how good i was (laughs) i mean it's one thing being good local, you know winning the odd event here and there but the other thing, you know, we'd gone down to South Africa and I'd played in a couple of little local things there and, you know, I'd done okay, but not against any diff- major competition. And then at 16, we started playing a lot of interprovincial golf. I got into the inter-provincial, interprovincial teams, um you know, the junior teams. I started playing a lot of match play and that. And then Fred Beaver, my good friend, he'd gone over in 1973. the junior world in San Diego and he came back and he said, you know, Nick, you've got to go. You've got to go. So how am I going to go? You know, my mom's got no money. My Mm. dad had died in 1967. Mm. I said, there's no way I can afford a trip like that. He said, no, they give you, if you can find someone else to go with you, you get 500 bucks, you get 250 each towards your air ticket and your expenses and you stay with people there and whatever. So I went back and chatted to my mom. I said, hey, you know, can, can I do this? And she said, well, you know, uh, you do all the work. You can write the letters and you can find <laughs> out everything. Else. If it's true, we'll, we'll look at it, you know. Yeah. I mean, my, there's no way we could afford to do that. So eventually I wrote away and they said, yep, you can do it. So you find someone else. So I had another friend of mine that I was trying to get to come with me. And, and uh, he, he couldn't go. For some rhyme or reason, for the, it was August of 74, he couldn't make it. But anyway, they accepted me, and they said this was like in the end of December or early January in '74.
1: Right.
2: And uh, you know, in those days, there was the British size ball, and there was the American size ball, and we'd all played playing the British size ball. And I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to go to America for this thing, I'm going to start learning to play the, the you know the big ball, yeah. the American size ball. And so I started playing with it right then and there at the age of sixteen, or you know, just before my 16th birthday. And, and it was a disadvantage in those days in amateur events to play with you know uh, uh, the American size ball because all the other guys were driving it so much further and also it outperformed you know the, the the big the American ball by far but I persevered and I think from that day that I switched my ball striking got better mm. I think it really did um, you know and, and I practiced really hard and went over there and I won this thing I mean you talk about you know <laughs> The, the craziest thing that could ever happen to me um, out of this field of you know fantastic amateurs there. Yeah, you know, yeah. John Cook was there, Hal Sutton. Um he, there was just a, a you know a slew of young amateur players that were so much better than I was. I ended up playing with this guy, staying with this guy, Doug Clark, who was two years younger than I was, and we went over and played La Jolla Country Club the day I arrived. Mm. And this guy outdrove me by like 15 yards. And he's fifteen, and I'm thinking, if he's fifteen, I got no chance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And anyway, the rest is history. So that was after that. I sort of think, well, maybe I have got enough game, you know. And I started playing a little bit more and 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 playing, and 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 then, you know, I had to do my national service in 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 uh, in Rhodesia at the time.
1: Yeah. And I
2: got deferred in '75 because I wanted to come and play the amateur some amateur golf over there, Mm -hmm. and I did. And uh, you know, the, the highlight of I got to the quarterfinals of the British Amateur at Hoylake, and Mark James beat me, um, and then went on to lose to Benny Giles in the in the final. That's right. Yeah, uh, but that was the highlight of my whole uh, the, the making it to the British Open at Carnoustie was the highlight. The rest of it, I played terrible. I really played awful. <laughs> it was raining. It was windy. It was cold. It was totally different conditions to what I'd grown up in. You know, we'd grown up in very benign, uh, beautiful weather. So um, when I went back home, I, I, I immediately went in to do my service. And, you know, we were all of us were in there for – it was a year at that time. Mm-hmm. And we'd been in for about 35 days, and they locked another six months onto us. So yeah. all of us that had calendars that we were crossing days out, just pulled yeah. them up and threw them away. Oh, Because we just had 180 days added to it. So – But anyway, when I got out in um, in September of 76, sorry, September of 77, uh, early October, I had no idea what I was going to do. Seriously, I had absolutely no idea. And so I would said to my mom, uh, you know, what do you think? Because my mom and I were very close, uh, obviously, after my dad died. Yeah. And she said, you know, why don't you just try professional golf? You've got nothing to lose. You know, you can go and try it for three or four years. You can come back if it doesn't work out. You know, go to university or go and get a trade or whatever. But you've got to try. And so, you know, I'd saved some money in the military and I had my old car. And so I turned pro and went down, drove down to South Africa. And first tournament, I, I was making $103 a month in the military.
1: Yeah.
2: And the first tournament I played in, in South Africa was the South African PGA. And I finished, I think it was 21st, and I made 275 dollars <laughs> and i you know, that, i was like i can't believe this, this yeah. is they're giving it away yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and i ended up making you know i don't know two thousand or, or eighteen hundred dollars in that first tour in about uh probably i want to say probably eight events so that sort of got me going and, and the the natural thing for me was to go to europe um everybody else was doing it you know uh, the guys who had tried going to America hadn't done very well. Dale Hayes, who was one of our great players, Bobby Cole, you know, who'd had a lot of success everywhere except mm-hmm. in the US. Um, and we knew, we all knew how hard it was in the US, but there was a natural gravitation toward Europe. And so that's where I went. And, you know, in those days, we were Monday qualifying. So uh, my first year to finish in the tops, to, to make sure that I got into the top 60 so I could be exempt for 1979 was so important to me. And, you know i i went through peaks and troughs and actually went to jersey for the british airways avis open in june july i think it was or june of 78 and i had 180 pounds left in my pocket and that was the extent of my wealth i had nothing else yeah and uh hobday simon hobday who was a great friend he said don't worry i'll spot you some money and if you need to borrow, you know you know all your friends do that Anyway, whatever it was, I had a great week. Ended up making seven hundred pounds. Went to Belgium the next week. Week made eleven hundred pounds, and that I was I was off to the races then. That was my real, you know, start. Yeah. And because we measured, you know, it was two hundred pounds, two hundred and twenty pounds a week to play a tournament in those days, and you measured your success in the early days about how much money you had in the bank, which would be how much you, how many tournaments you could play. So if you yeah, had 2,500 yeah. bucks, basically you had, you know, 2,500 pounds, you had uh, 10 tournaments ahead of you. Yeah. So that's how we worked. Um, anyway, I was, I was getting into the top one, uh, sorry, the top 60, and we went to, uh, right after the Open, which was at St. Andrews that year, which uh, uh, I played and made the cutting. We went to Holland, and I ended up finishing second in Holland. But if you remember then, they had a strike. Yes. The players had a yes. strike there. And so the tournament was a 54-hole event, and the money didn't count. <laughs> <laughs> so here yeah, I was like 50th on the order of merit, in, and and if I had money it counted, I would have been well into the top, you know, sort of 30. And it <laughs> and didn't count, so I stuck around. I just wanted to go back home and go and try and put in – practice what I'd learned over there, you know, from watching Seve and watching all the great players around yeah, at that time. Yeah. But to go to a warmer climate where I could just sit back, look back and say, this, this is what I'm
1: going to do. So anyway, that's
2: how I ended up getting
1: to Europe. Yeah. Before before we uh, – in preparation for this chat, um, I, I was looking at your record, obviously, and I was going to suggest to you that the uh, the 1983 World Series of Golf in America – with not, not, obviously not the biggest event you'd ever won, but maybe the most important in your career. But you're putting me right on that. It sounds like there's four or five um, more important yeah. weeks than that one. I don't care what anyone says, but, you know, that first professional win that you
2: get, it just confirms, you know, uh, or reassures you that you have chosen the right profession. Mm. And I was lucky because I won a tournament in South Africa at the end of 1979, and it was a 54-hole event, but it was an official event on the South African Tour called the ASING, the Associated Engineering uh, Tournament, and I won by, like, five shots, and I beat all the best players, you know, that were there, then, and Bland, you know, you name it, all of yeah. the really good players that we had playing, Dale Hayes, and that was a, that was a real milestone for me because then I knew that I was in, you know, the right profession, and then winning in Switzerland in Europe in 1980, after having been close uh, on in probably four or five occasions um, in Europe in, in 78 and 79, winning in Switzerland was also a, a huge milestone for me. Um, so, So, you know. I I've got You know,
1: every place that I played, I have to thank it because you know it was, it was yeah. an opportunity. Yeah. In in passing, Nick. I, I, again, uh, looking at your record, I, I picked up on something that I hadn't realized. But you were not a man that anybody would want to play against in a playoff. Uh, did you ever lose a playoff? My goodness, you, it's nothing but playoff wins all over the place.
2: <laughs> you know, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I lost one the Western Open. Uh, in fact, I lost the Western open twice. Um, Tom kite beat me in 1985. I think it was 85 or 86 at, uh, we were playing at the Butler in Chicago. Yeah. And then, um, I lost to Robert Allenby in the Western open. And I think it was 2000 or 2001. And that had changed. Then we'd gone to cog Hill. And so I had won two previous uh, Western opens. So, uh, you know, there was something about Chicago and mm. golf courses there, there that I really loved.
1: So, um, but I can't think of any other others. Um, no, I mean, other? Your, your record's littered with playoff wins. I could not believe it. I thought I'm surprised to hear that you lost even one. So. <laughs> well, I think you know that all comes. I, you know, when you have all that match play
2: as a youngster mm. and as an amateur, I think that always bodes well to those who
1: you know get into to match play situations. So. I don't want to gloss over too much about Europe, but um, what uh, took you to America from Europe? Was it just the, the obvious next kind of stepping stone? Uh, to be honest,
2: John, it was the weather in Europe. Yeah. The weather, <laughs> the conditions, yeah. The condition of a lot of the golf courses in those days, the way yeah. we played, was terrible. Um, you know, we used to hit flyers out the fairway. We'd get mud balls. Yeah. It was very, very trying conditions. And, you know, I felt like in 80, 81, I'd sort of topped out. I didn't feel like I was improving the way I wanted to. In fact, in 81, I had a really sort of down year where I worked twice as hard and got half the reward. Um, so I called Ledbetter, David, my good friend, who I played junior golf with back home. David's uh, in between, age-wise, between my uh, next brother up and myself, so he's about three years, four years older than I am. And I played with him in, at uh, Royal Salisbury in a junior event in, I was 11, so it was 1968, and he was 15, and I couldn't believe how well this guy played, you know. Anyway, we became very good friends before we uh, before we started as a teacher-pupil teacher thing. And in fact, he was over at a club when I was playing in Europe uh, in in Staverton, uh, and I used to go and stay with him. And we'd practice there and play a little bit, and, and we were we were you know relatively good friends. And then Dennis Watson came back from America in at the end of '81, and I looked at his golf swing. He had gone through tour school there, and basically had had enough of European weather as well. And he <laughs> said, you know, I, I looked at him. I said, I can't believe what your golf swing looks like. He said, well, I went to see David. So I said, do you think he'll see me? I said, just phone him. So I phoned David, and I went there in uh, in the beginning of 82, you know, right after the European, I mean, the South African tour finished. Yeah. And I spent a month with him just working on my golf swing because I, I really, I was originally only going to spend two weeks there. And then when I saw, you know, how many, extraneous moves I had in my golf swing.
1: <laughs> well, I, I've seen your instruction book, Nick, and there's a sequence in there of your, your old swing, if we can put it that way. Um, never mind Nick Faldo, who came along later with David ledbetter David, right. the, the changes he made to your swing were huge, it seemed like. Well, absolutely. And, you know, it was very – in the long run, it, was, it, 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 was, it took a long
2: time. I mean, those sort of changes that you – I don't want to say – changes because everyone you can't really change the golf swing Mm. the golf swing you have you're given for the rest of your life what you do is you refine it yeah and you get rid of all of those extra movements and if you have a look my golf swing today is you know there's there's still all of those idiosyncrasies of of you know flattening the club out getting a little steep in the backswing Mm. uh, um you know flattening it out on the way down being very square at impact there's a lot lot of things that are exactly the same the thing is when you have all those extra moves it's harder to replicate. Yeah. And in fact, that one swing sequence was taken in 1981 in Germany. And, you know, my legs were going all over the yeah. place. And it was, it
1: was terrible. <laughs> I thought it was something else. So I knew else. what I
2: had to work on. You know? <laughs> so David was fantastic. You know, he said, look, he was a, also a, a startup rookie teacher. I mean, he was stuff that we worked on originally um, that we would never work on today. Um, you know, just, it was just we did it. That's what we felt was right. And, but we worked so hard on the plane, on the plane of my golf swing. And, mm-hmm. you know, I went back to Europe uh, in June. So I was in, in America April, May, sort of toward the – came back uh, end of May, I think it was. And then played like three or four events. Not very well. Uh, but I got to the tournament at the Belfry. I think it was the State Express yeah. Open. Was a week before the British Open, which was at Troon that year. And I found something, you know, I'd been all over the place and I'd sort of play well for nine holes and then the next nine wouldn't be. I'd been all over and I found something and I just started hitting it really well. And uh, so I got to the U- the British o- the Open Championship at, at uh, Troon and just played my life out. I mean, I played my heart out for, you know, for 68 holes. And, you know, to, to have gone from where I was, At the beginning of 1982, to suddenly being thrust in this limelight Mm. of, uh, you know, major championship pressure. And, you know, even though I, I failed, even though I made some mistakes coming down the stretch, I still hit some great shots coming down the stretch. And the back nine, you know, I was, I was, I was behind and Tom Watson at that stage was making a move, and I turned to my caddy. I said, you know, I'm going to have to make some birdies if I'm going to win this, and I birdied 10, 11, and 12, and so I rose to the occasion when I needed to. Uh, The the only thing is I think that from there on in, I I had a little bit too much self-doubt, and, you know, if I just kept playing my game, maybe I would have won it. Um, I don't know, But, but that's happened, but I was just ecstatic that I had played that well in a major championship and more than anything knew I had the ability to win a major championship if I got my game in, in, in good shape. Yeah.
1: Now, I've heard you say before that, that it was actually not the worst thing that ever happened, not winning at that stage of your life or your career. Do you still feel that way? Yeah, I, I think I think the
2: determination and the drive, I think it would have been harder for me with the pressure I had on me, to accept the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, to, to accept the responsibility mm. and also uh, live up to the quality of playing as a major championship, yeah. major champion. Yeah, I think that was really hard. So the motivation that I had, you know, was basically, I'm telling myself, you know, that happens again, I'm going to win. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm going to win. Mm-hmm. That was my motivation. And of course, you know uh, there had been a few opportunities
1: right well, after that to win. Well, I, I, you know, when people mention your name in, in an Open Championship context, I always think of three in particular, and I'm sure you know the ones I'm talking about. The obviously 82 mm-hmm. at Troon when you you so nearly won, then 88 at, at Lytham, where you played magnificently, I think, and, and just got beat by somebody who was just that little bit better, Sevy. That that was that was a, what a day that was. The three you playing with Sevy and Nick Faldo on the Monday. Um, you, 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 I've got to ask you about that. You, you, what, what, are your memories of that? I mean, it was, it's one of the greatest days ever, I think. Well,
2: you know, I was, I was hitting the ball. I was absolutely striping it, and you know, going through to Monday. Obviously, there was a little bit of you know apprehension because um, you know you, 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 Monday is a totally different day. It's you know, everything's different. We're now playing twosomes. We're now playing threesomes. And uh, But my game was great. I went and warmed up, hit the ball great, got out there and just, you know, hit the ball solid the first six holes and uh, made an eagle on uh, number seven. Yeah. Par five, along Seve made eagle as well. Uh, but he he held a longer putt. I think I hit it in about six, seven feet, and he hit it about 20 feet behind the hole. He made his and I made mine. And at that stage, I think we were like four shots clear of Nick Faldo, and we just knew yeah. that one of it was going to be between, you know, him and me. I mean, it wasn't it, Nick wasn't playing well, and you know, he was he, he wasn't behaving very well either. <laughs> but, uh, I'm shocked to hear you know shocked. Yeah, <laughs> and we we uh, and Seve and I just went into our own little you know, balls, we went into our own little, uh, zones mm. and we just knew, you know, it was punch, counter punch, punch, counter punch, And, you know, it, eventually the guy, I mean, he just hit so many beautiful golf shots, but what he did that impressed me so much that day was he finished off with the putter, you know, every time he needed to make a putt, he did. And it was it, it was a it was a life-changing experience for me because I realized after that or after I had come second, that in order for me to win a major championship, I really had to start working on my short game more. Mm. Uh, my long game from Tee to Green was as good as anybody's um, you know but I just really needed to work on my short game more and more and that that's what started it and you know it took me, three years, two and a half years before ninety one rolled around and I started winning. And you know, once I started winning, the rest was history.
1: Yeah, I mean there was certainly no shame in, in losing that day in eighty eight um to somebody playing at the level that Sevi played at. You know, it was incredible stuff. I mean I, I wanted to ask I've always wanted to ask you what what was going through your mind when you hit that incredible chip at the on the eighteenth? Well you know what actually happened? I mean if you if you go back and look at the eighteenth hole I was,
2: I was uh, one back, uh, and I can tell you now I was as calm on that 18th tee, that 72nd hole, talking to you as I am now. And I even surprised myself, but I it was in this. I knew I had so much confidence in the way I was hitting the ball. And he had the honor because he'd birdied 16 with probably one of the most beautiful little 9-9 shots I'd ever seen mm. in my life. Yeah, he stiffed it, um, yeah. It was, it was, you know, inches and it should have gone in. And he came off his tee shot on 18. And I swear, if you, uh, I, I thought he'd hit it in that bunker. There's a pot yeah. bunker on the yeah. right-hand side. And I, I promise, I knew he missed hit um, it. And I thought that is in that pot bunker because we didn't see it bounce. We didn't see anything. And I stood up there and just rifled the tee shot right down the middle of the fairway. And we get up there and, you know, I'm kind of looking where Savvy is. And the next thing I see, he's actually carried the bunker and he's got a shot. And he's in there, you know, the grass that he's in is foot long. Mm. But he's got a lie. He can hit it out. I mean, he was he was very fortunate in that, that, you know, A, it, it didn't go in the bunker because it must have just pitched on the back end of the bunker and gone. It was when B, he didn't get a, a, a terrible lie. Yeah. And he hit a, you know, a really good shot over to the green to the backside. And I'm standing there with a six iron in the left half of the fairway. And I've got, I mean, there's not a breath of wind. And all I can think about is just hitting this stiff. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was so pumped up. Yeah. And it was going to be my way of hitting that shot that he'd hit on 16 and doing it to him on 18. Yeah. And I just rushed it. I was so excited about hitting it. I just rushed it and I pulled it. And I may have taken, you know, two seconds Mm -hmm. less than I normally take and I pulled it left, and I was so disappointed when I hit that shot because, you know, I'd been hitting the ball so beautifully all day. And then he hit that chip shot. And, you know, I, I knew, you know, you, you don't give any of those players, but particularly Seve, you never give him an inch because yeah. he, you know he's going to shut you down. Yeah. And, you know, it was probably one of the most brilliant chip shots you'll ever see ever. And under the circumstances, um, it was amazing. Yeah. Again, I don't know how it didn't go in.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I've watched the film of that, you know, I don't know how many times. And when the two of you shake hands at the end, Nick, he, Nick, uh, Sevy's lips are, are going quite quickly. He's obviously saying something to you. What, what did he actually say to you? Well, you know, he understood. I, I couldn't remember his
2: exact words, but he basically said, you played great today. Hmm. And, you know, um, you, you forced me to play as well as I did. And I said, yep. I said, you know, I wanted to win as badly as you did, and he said, you know, basically, you will, you will win, you will win this one day.
1: Mm.
2: I'm sort of thinking, you know, I'm 31 years old, and thinking you know, I've had two cracks at it. <laughs> when am I going to get another crack at it? You know?
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. I mean, it must have been obviously be hard to take at the time, but you know, obviously, you've had plenty of time to think about it, and, and your perspective on it must have. You must be very proud of that. I mean, I, if if I'd played that well, I it didn't. It, it, you don't really. When, so you you don't care if you win or not, but you 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 come away you must you must be grown in stature inside at least.
2: But it was so different, John. To so well, I'd had a couple of close shaves in major championships since '82. Mm. So the Open in '88 wasn't my second go around in a major championship because you know I played with Trevino and Hubert Green at the PGA in 1985. Yeah, in the last group, you know, 1986, I came close to winning the Masters. Um, in 87, I played well in the PGA. Um, so, you know, I, I, every now and then I was knocking on the door and having an opportunity to win. Um, but the, the, the mindset of easily just sort of said, you know, when am I ever going to win one of these? But which, you know, I, 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 did feel for a short period of time, but I had to look at the positive side of it. I had to look at the way I played for four rounds Yeah, and I had hit a very few loose shots. Um, I'd hit the ball extremely well under severe pressure. And it was just a question of me getting my short game sorted out. Because once I got my short game sorted out, then I think, you know, I felt like the floodgates were gonna open for me. Yeah. Cause you know, when you when you do win that first tournament or, or championship, whatever it is. You know, there is a multiplication, there's a confidence factor there, which it could be a five multiple, five times multiple, you know, yeah. it could be yeah. 10 times, could be 20 times. Everybody's different. But for me, it was so significant. And I just started getting more and more confident in my ability. And, you know, I felt that, you know, when I was playing really well, that if I did play, if I played using my head and, you know, never got ahead of myself uh, and I hit the ball well and my short game was in good shape. I was always going to have a chance to win. didn't matter where it was. On whatever golf course, um, you know, I had a chance to win. So that's what I had worked so hard for my entire career. And so when I did get
1: it, you know, I, I latched onto it with both hands. And it lasted, you know, three years, three and a half years. Well, yeah. Again, when, when people ask me about Nick Price, I, this is a very simplistic analysis. See what you think. I, I always say, well, you know, for a few years when I was – Spending time around you and writing your instruction pieces for Digest and all the rest of it, we were. I, I said, "Well, this guy for a few years he was he was just the best ball striker in the world. Then, for about five years, he found a short game and a putting stroke and became the best player in the world. And after that, he just went back to being the best ball striker again." Now that <laughs> that's a very simplistic view and slightly yeah. to in cheek, but I mean, it's it's not far off, I don't think. Not at all. Not at all. You know,
2: and and, and looking back, I think, um, you know, I I wanted to in that sort of 91, two, three, 4 period in ninety five, I really wanted to strike while the iron was hot. Mm. And I think in hindsight, I probably would, if I had to go and do it again, uh, I would do less than I did. Uh, and I think that sort of led to a little led to a little bit of burnout for me, which happened in ninety six. Mm. I felt it coming on at the end of 95 where, you know, I just, uh, there wasn't, there wasn't a, lot of, a lot of gas left in the tank. And then uh, 96, I had, um, I had some really bad problems with my sinuses and um, ended up, you know, I didn't have, to have surgery, but I, I, I couldn't get rid of these infections I kept getting. And yeah. it actually turned out there was the house that we had first bought down here where we live now before we burnt, uh, knocked it down. Um, had some mold issues, and that mold is what sort of gave me these, uh, right. Right. these allergy reactions, and my sinuses were terrible. But anyway, uh, um, you know, and then 97, 98, 99, 2000, you know, and I'm now I'm up into my early 40s, you know, 90, 2000, I was 43. Mm-hmm. And then the equipment came along, and the equipment really changed things for me because, uh, you know, suddenly from 1994, you know, I was sixth in driving distance, 1993, I was like 11th in driving distance. Mm -hmm. Suddenly in 2000, I'm hundred and eleventh in driving distance. Yeah. And I'm hitting the ball the same distance. So I unfortunately didn't get the help from the equipment that a lot of other guys did. Um, You know, they just uh, I I don't know what happened, but, you know, uh, Ernie, I remember playing with Ernie at the, uh, in 2003 and 1980, 1998, we had played the uh, shelves match in South Africa at Johan Rupert's Leopard Creek. Yes. And I was out driving him, you know, by, I was flushing the ball. I mean, I was hitting it really well, and he was not getting great, but I was out driving him probably, you know, every second drive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then four years later, we're playing a practice round at, uh, at Kapalua for the Tournament of Champions in Hawaii.
1: I couldn't get it within thirty-five yards of him, mm-hmm. and you know I'm so you know. Well, he, I mean, I. Got, Ernie years ago told me that he gained about, I think it was thirty yards. He said overnight, with the Pro V1 mm-hmm. golf ball, just with the golf ball. Right. yes So that was obviously and the
2: driver. You know, yeah. he, he matched up the driver and that with the, with the ball, which you know the guys were doing at that stage. And when I hit the Pro V1. Uh, you know uh, with with a with a big headed or the titanium driver I, I think I picked up like four yards mm. you know but I did not hit it as straight as mine so I just kept my old driver you know so
1: um, it's kind of weird but anyway yeah uh, I, I wanted to get into that subject a little bit later on but I, to, I wanted to briefly take you back to you know the period when you were ranked number one in the world and you were winning majors and things I mean how did you react to that? I mean, how, how did life change? I mean, did, did, certainly in terms of the media, did you suddenly become an expert in, you know, politics, the economy, the rearing of children, <laughs> all that kind of stuff? I mean, the, you get, ten, you tend to get asked all kinds of things when you're the best player in the world. What was that like? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I've always tried, tried to leave the comments
2: or that I comment or any comments to something that I know about. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just look. I, I, it was difficult because there were so many demands on my time. There were people pulling at me from all directions and mm-hmm. wanting me to come to this event and go and do this event and please can you come and get this award and please you know I mean it was really hard in that respect. But and that's what comes with a lot of success is the fact that there are more demands on your time. And so I tried to be really careful and be do as much. Uh, of a cross section of people that I could, you know, so I would do charity events. I would do, you know, just so that it was well-rounded. I, I, I just felt that that's what I needed to do. And I think I ran myself a little thin, you know, I did, I was with golf digest, as you know, with mm-hmm. them for a long time. And, but I was having other magazines from around the world, come here and wanted to do, you know, photo shoots and, you know, swing things. And what are you working on? You're putting, you know, you're chipping mm-hmm. all instructional tapes and uh, uh, articles and videos. Um, so it, it was hard. And as I say, I try to get a balance where I would do you know, guys from Australia and I'd do another guy from Japan and I'd do, you know, from UK so that, cause I was a global golfer. I played golf everywhere. So mm-hmm. I, I wanted to have a presence in all those places, but not only that, you know, you can't just because you're in the big theater, you can't forget the little guys. And and certainly I've been a little guy for most of my career. So I always was partial to guys who, you know, were, were starting up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it was a difficult time. Definitely was a, a time of uh, change,
1: mm-hmm. not only because of my
2: game, but, but also off the course. Uh,
1: on the other hand, uh, you know, without getting too specific here because it's your business, but the, the money must have been a huge jump at that time for you. You know, there'd be appearance money and, you know, playing all the big events. Yep. I mean, how big of a change did that bring to your life? Well, I didn't really, I mean, you know, I was obviously thinking,
2: you know, making a lot of money here, Mm -hmm. but I didn't want to back off. Uh, I just wanted to just keep going and and, and it wasn't motivated uh, monetarily. It was, Mm -hmm. was, I want to win. Yeah. Because I played for so many years in my career where I hadn't been a consistent winner. And now all of a sudden, you know, I was winning five, six, seven tournaments a year.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, around the world. And, and I didn't want that to stop. I'd worked so hard to get to this level that I didn't want it to end. Um, and, uh, you know, but the, obviously the money, you know, it, it, made, it made a huge difference, but, you know, compared to what the guys are making now.
1: Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it's I can sure. imagine. You know, Dustin yeah. Johnson made more in one year last year than I made in my entire career. Yeah, I can imagine, yes. Yeah. <laughs> how um, how important to you, you know, just – was winning the Open after, the, as you said, we've, we've covered the two near things, but uh, is that still the, the, the biggest thing in your competitive life, was winning the Open at Turnberry?
2: That summer of 94, uh, I played about as well as I think it's humanly possible. I think I won, you know, five events in like nine weeks or ten weeks, uh, including two majors. Uh, so it was a bit of a whirlwind. Mm-hmm. A whirlwind, But uh, to be honest, that was the, uh, you know, the Open Championship was the highlight and the pinnacle of my career. There's, to me, uh, having been so close so many times, you know, not only just those two occasions in 81 and 88, but I'd had another, you know, 93 when Greg won. And yeah. Uh, uh, the Royals and George's, I played well there. I think I finished fifth or fourth there. Mm-hmm. Had a chance to win. Anytime you finish in the top four or five, you know, you you have an opportunity to win. Uh, when uh, Feldo won at Muirfield, I think it was in 91. I played really well there. I just patted so poorly the last sort of 27 holes. Mm. But anyway, um, you know, w- winning that open championship and particularly the way I did at the end there, John, mm. was, was yeah. something that, you know, I, I was never really a charger. I was always a, sort of a, a good front runner or being around the lead. But, you know, the way I finished those last, you know, seven holes mm. uh, um, was just, I played them in four under par. So, you know, that was that that's what you have to do to win
1: major championships. Yeah. And what's your And ext- I got a bit of help from Yesper, obviously. You, you, you did, know, yeah. yeah. What what's your estimate of how long that putt you hold on the 17th green was? How how far was that? Oh, uh, no, they they measured it. They said it was 54, 54 52 feet, I think it was. <laughs> wow.
2: <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I mean, I've heard some people say it was 100 footer, but you know, you know,
1: No, that's a- You know
2: how that gets that's a, that's a different
1: time zone. That's it, yeah. But uh, so anyway, uh, just to to round off the open, um, what did it? How emotional did you get? Were, were there any tears shed that evening when you won?
2: Uh, you know, if you have a look at the video, you know that, I, that um, 18th hole after I made that putt, mm-hmm. you know, the, you could see I held the hand, my putter above my head, and yeah. you know, sort of in victory, and you could see my eyes were watering up there. Uh, it meant an awful lot to me. Uh, you know, I, I, I just i think the best thing I ever said about when that, that acceptance speech was, you know, 1982 I had the left hand on it, and 1988 I had the right hand on it, and yeah. finally, 12 years later, I've got both hands on it. And, um, you know, just it, it, it was a huge relief for me. And, uh, like I say, winning in the way I wanted, I you know, I felt like. You know, Arnold Palmer, you know, there was a lot of things that I felt like that day, but, you know, to come charging from behind and, uh, and when, I mean, I, I think there's nothing better than making, you know, a 20 footer or a putt on the 18th hole to win by a shot um but you know after i made that eagle putt i probably my heart rate i was running around the green mm, yeah. and jumping up and down <laughs> i was so excited my heart rate probably went to like 250 or whatever you know and i still had 18 to, number 18 to play yeah yeah um but it was it was you know it was tough uh, in that respect and i had to gather myself and i used all the experience you know that i sort of gleaned over the years when i got to that 18th hole and just stood up there and ripped a three iron off the tee and hit it you know it was very firm and fast, but I hit it about two hundred and fifty yards, and then
1: uh, hit the seven nine in the middle of the green. I played the 18th hole perfectly. So yeah. yeah. Squeaky, your caddy, who is sadly no longer with us. I mean, what words of advice was he, was he calming you down between 17th green and 18th tee? What, what was being said at that point?
2: Yeah, no. no you know, yeah. he said, "Come on." Nick. You know, he was he was a fantastic caddy, as you yeah. know. Yeah. But he said, "Come on, Nick. We've still got 18 to play. You know, let's." Uh, Let's get going. here. we've got to focus. And mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I was back in there with him. You know, I mean, we were we were very very good at yeah. being able to stay in the moment, and we snapped back into it. And you know, we got on the tee, and he was sort of whispered in my ear, routine. You know, just get back into your routine, yeah. which I did. I was so disciplined at that stage. But you know, it's always nice when you got someone reminding you of that, yeah. and um, and so I got back into my routine, and like I said, played the 18th hole about as picture perfect. That you that you could with a one shot lead.
1: Yeah, um, I, I want to jump now from uh, from that to the the President's Cup. Um, you've had a long involvement uh, in a couple of roles, uh, playing and, and captaining in the President's Cup. I'm I'm always intrigued by the the contrast in the American team's record in the President's Cup versus the Ryder Cup. Um, I know there's you you must have a, an insight into why the the international teams only won once. Uh, And all the time that's been going on. I mean, it's intriguing to me because there's obvious problems with players coming from so many different countries and different languages and all the rest of it. It's to, to become bonded as a team must be difficult, I would imagine. But the, the quality of the players has always been there and it's, it's difficult. It's, what was the, is there a reason, a single reason why the Americans have dominated so much? Well, you know,
2: indirectly, we're all playing for our countries, but we're not really representing our countries mm. as an international team. Um, the, the difficulty is, uh, you know, because we draw from, you know, so many different countries, there is continuity at the top half of our team. Mm. So, you know, the six, the top six, seven guys are pretty much the same guys that you're going to have every two years. You know, Jason Day, Shaw Schwartzel, Louie, yeah. uh, You know, my day was Ernie, myself. Uh, you know, Greg Norman. Yeah. Uh, VG. But so, yeah. but, yeah. but the, the tail end of the t- of the team are guys who are coming out. A lot of them for the first time, and they're a little bit like deer in headlights. Mm. You know, they don't really understand what's going on, and uh, it's it's difficult in that respect. Um, we we play more points. In the in the President's Cup than you yeah. do in the Ryder Cup, yeah. So that exposes us a little bit more to the bottom of our players. So the more your bottom players play, uh, I think we went down to eighty fourth on the world ranking to our for our last pick mm. in two thousand and seventeen, and the guy the uh, the the American counterpart who was twelfth spot was thirty third yeah. in the world ranking, yeah. So there's quite a disparity there, you know, um, because, you know, those two players are, are really like a half a shot apart yeah. in performance. Um, so the odds are, you know, that they, 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 the more they play number 10, 11, 12, the better chance they've got. Um, having said that, the, the difficulty, you know, because Europe doesn't always have a really strong team. But they are playing for something. They are playing for the European tour. Yeah. And there's so much emotion there where, you know, the American – we go out there not to beat the Americans. We go out there to try and win the President's Cup. It's it's a totally different mentality. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We do, we do want to beat the Americans. We do. But we go out there. We're trying to win the Cup, whereas – everyone in Europe that plays on that team, they want to beat the Americans. And the Americans want to beat the European team. Mm-hmm. So that's where there's so much passion. And, you know, that kind of passion brings out the best in a lot of players. And, and it, it, it really does work. Now, I would say, hesitate to say this, but if you gave me 12 Australians or 12 South Africans or mm-hmm. 12 uh, Japanese players or, or, you know, 12 guys from the same country, whatever country, uh, I think you would have a lot more emotion involved in that uh, than than just by having the international team. Having said that, we've been so close on so many occasions. Mm. Uh, and, and, it, and it, you know, obviously in Korea, in 2015, we were with, I think, half a point away from beating them. Yeah. Um, we had a fantastic team. And it seems to us that the moment we go out of America, the, the international team is less intimidated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it seems like, you know, the best chances we seem to have had were outside of America. The one year, I think it was two, no, nine, 90, maybe 2000, 98, late 90s, we had a chance at uh, Robert Trent Jones course in Manassas, Virginia. Yeah. yeah. I think that was pretty close. It came to within a point. I mean, it was but that's the closest i think we've ever been in, in the u.s and you know when you think about it america is a powerhouse of golf hmm. you look at the numbers how many golf courses they have how many golfers they produce and you you know you look at the quality of their top players i mean uh, they have so much more depth than the rest of the world uh,
1: and so it's 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 not surprising
2: that they
1: win as often as they do. No, you've got to find a way of getting inside their heads, which is what it seems to me to a large extent what the Europeans have done. Because, as you just said, the, you look at the on paper, even even before each Ryder Cup match, you, you think, well, the American team looks better on paper, but they they seem to find ways to lose. You know, so obviously there's something going on between their ears because it's not the quality of their golf. If they played to the top of their games, they would win. But but they don't. So there's obviously something going on.
2: I think it's it's hard for them, you know, where they are all revered in their home country as you know icons, heroes, and then to go to Europe, where you know obviously there's there's a lot of passion and there's a lot of um, yeah. uh, what's the word I'm looking for again? You know, there's a lot of emotion on on amongst the gallery. You know, and there's things that are said and done and a lot of, you, you've got to have a pretty thick skin to put up with some of that stuff, you know, some of that abuse. Um, but it happens over here, too. Um, you know, it happens. I mean, for someone, I played 99% of my golf in my life professionally outside of my own country mm-hmm. where I was yeah. a foreigner, whether I was in Europe or whether I was in America or Australia or wherever it was. Um you know, it was it was different, um, and and so I went through the full sort of emotional uh, changes and over the years, where you know you were you were an imposter. You know, even yes. playing against yeah. Sebi in in, in eighty eight, I was an imposter. I was this young guy from Zimbabwe going to beat, trying to beat you know the, the El Conquistador, yes. Sebi. Yeah. You know, suddenly I was, there were people in the gallery that were saying things, you know, and whatever, but there were a lot of people in there pulling for me too. So, but I think as a golfer, especially if you're overseas and you come into a foreign country, you have to prove yourself. You prove yourself and you do that over a period of time. And that's why, you know, guys, get so popular. I mean, look how popular Arnold Palmer was, you know, when he first came over to the Open Championship and throughout his life, he gave so much to the Open Championship. He brought so much value to the Open Championship. So, um, you know, you, you earn that respect, that's for sure. And you know what? The guys on the U.S. team, when they go to Europe and they say the right things and they play golf and they let their clubs do the talking, they earn the respect
1: of those people there too. Yeah, well, I, I've, you know, I'm, obviously I'm from Scotland and I've always been very proud of the fact that as, as a race, we our, our golfing heroes are, you know, it doesn't matter where they come from. I mean, you can almost argue that the the greatest ones have been Americans with Bobby Jones and Nicholas and Watson Right. Uh, you guys like that, I mean, it, it just doesn't matter, and, and nor should it. But it's not always that way, as you just pointed out. Exactly. Just to finish off on the subject of the President's Cup, I mean, how how would you sum up your, your style of captaincy? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I did it more
2: as the, as the, a as the team head as opposed to being a captain. I I asked the guys when we made the picks, who, if they would write down in those, you know, when when I was captain, we had uh, two picks. Uh, I think they've gone to four now, but I would say, okay, just put, you know, four guys down, uh, one through four, who you think we should pick um, or I should pick. Mm -hmm. And pretty much they were all in the same, you know, the top two were the guys that we ended up picking anyway or the guys that got the most votes, you know, four for first place and one for fourth place. Um, you know, it was pretty much, it was, it was easy to do, but I I tried to be a a team captain as opposed to a captain of a team. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. yeah. You know,
2: I, I wanted to be, uh, guys, you know, I want to hear, you know, any of your grievances or the the, the good things, tell us the good stories, anything that you think can help. And then obviously, you know, when you make the picks each day. There's some guys who are very offended they're not playing, and you know that's that's a tough thing to do. But you just tell them, hey, you know, you you're either better in the stroke in the um, alternate shot, or you're better in the uh, best ball, whatever it may be. And I want to save you for that, whatever it may be, you know. And the guys, pretty much the guys who are playing poorly, you know, they they're quite happy to sit out sometimes. But you you know, you're dealing with twelve very strong characters and guys who are successful. Um, it was great fun for me, though, you know, especially I would like to have done it when I was younger, but I was so busy, you know, with the end of the, uh, of the regular tour and then getting into the Champions Tour. And, you know, when, when you're a golfer, you want to play, you want to compete. And I felt like I had to wait my turn. Uh, you know, Greg did the two years, Greg Norman did the two years uh, or the two President's Cup before me. And, and he's older than I am and he deserved that, you know, to get it ahead of me. Um But uh, it was great fun, and especially now you know having got to know Jason Day a, a lot better. Got to know Louis and Charles, Louis O'Shea and Charles Schwartzel and yeah. Brandon Grayson and you know Siwoo Kim and you name it. Adam Hadwin, you know all the young guys. It was it was great fun being part of that. And uh, uh you know I I, I I missed it last time. I, I I would love to have done something in Australia with Ernie. Yeah. I think there's a uh, you know, that's we're seeing these American. What the American teams and captains are doing now is they keeping in those four or five guys: Fred Couples, Davis Love, Jim Furyk, guys who have the experience and the know-how and have been there three or four times. You know, plus having played in it. I think they they've they've come across a really good recipe, which yeah. is basically what Europe did for a long time. You know, when you look at Seve and Jose Maria and. Uh, Bell and and uh, you know him and the Spanish connection, but then also, you know, you see what Padraig's doing and how he's been involved. Lee Westwood, you know, uh, it, it, it's 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 much easier, I think, to keep the same guys in the rotation in Europe as it, uh, than it is here in America.
1: Yeah, there seems to be that you know, the Europeans, you know, they certainly put a lot of thought into it. I mean, if you take the last time when when Thomas Bjorn was the captain, I mean, he, he made his picks and. Like everybody else, I suspect, I was kind of, mm, really, hmm. And then as soon as I got to the golf course and had a little walk around, I went, ah oh, now I get it. And he completely right, he right. completely hoodwinked the Americans. I mean it, it was I actually started to laugh at one point. I was out there watching and standing watching was um Furick, Matt Kutcher, zach Johnson, and Steve Stricker all standing in a row. And I thought to myself all four of them on this golf course would be far better than some of the guys that were actually playing in the team. So the setup of the golf course is a huge part of it now, I think.
2: Absolutely. you know, And we played a golf course that is neither uh, side had much say in the setup of the golf course. So it was a, kind of like a neutral. Now, I don't know if that's good or bad. Um, I kind of like the way Europe do it mm-hmm. and, and America, you know, that that you can – you can grow the rough up, or you may not have any rough, or whatever. I mean, certainly, um, you know, the, the the home the home ground has sets the battlefield, you know, <laughs> and I I kind of like that.
1: Yeah, the, the danger, though, Nick, is that um, if you look at the last few results of the Ryder Cup, with the exception of Medina, which was extraordinary, the the home team have been winning quite comfortably. There's a danger in that, in that if you set it up, they get too much say in setting it up. They can almost. No guarantee. Obviously, nothing's guaranteed in golf, but they can certainly make themselves strong favourites when they're playing at home. And they th- the whole thing might lose a bit of its appeal if they do too much of that.
2: Yeah, it could. You know, the the greatest thing about the Ryder Cup as opposed to any of the other inter- any of the other um, team matches is that you want it to come down to one putt with the last group mm. on the last green. You know, every time you you have the event. And it's amazing how many times that's happened. Yeah. How many times it's come to the 18th hole, you know, with, with not necessarily the last group. But there's, you know, there's a putt on the 18th hole or a shot that it determines who's going to win. And to me, that is what you watch it for. You know, you watch it for three days. And it's so exciting. And there's so much great golf. And you, you look at the different characters and, you know, the pairings that, that are done. And, um, you know, you, you can sort of see the tension on the younger guys' faces and the older guys. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, just a, it's just a wonderful event. And, you know, kudos to Seve. Kudos to the European tour um, for, for changing the format. Kudos to Jack Nicklaus. Yeah. You know, and a lot of the American guys who, you know, took an event that was floundering, I think is probably the best word, um, and, and turned it into this phenomenal um, matchup. Uh, you know, it's just, I, I think it's such a wonderful event. And that's why, you know, when Commissioner and Dean Beeman, you know, came and said, listen, you guys want to do something on an international, with an international flavor. And we thought, absolutely. Uh, you know, and that that's why the I think the President's Cup has been l- a lot of fun to play in for for both teams, but it really needs to be bounced around a little more. You need the winners to, the winning, you know, one, to be honest, the international team should have probably won four or five times by
0: mm, now.
1: Yeah,
2: um, and but it just—it's not—it's not—it uh, just hasn't happened.
1: Yeah, the last time in Melbourne, they were—they were close. I mean, they, they pushed them all the way without, you know, again on paper a markedly inferior team. So it can be done, I think. There's there's nothing like that momentum and that uh, in, inspiration
2: from your team. There's I don't think there's anything that can compare to that. And when, when a team is inspired and motivated, uh, I, I don't care if, if they are, you know, 80th on the money list or on the world ranking, that guy can beat a guy who's like fourth or fifth in the world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Almost the best part of it, though, is especially in the Ryder Cup, and I'm sure it's in the President's Cup too, is the. The level of pressure that these guys seem to feel—I mean, these guys—they play for huge amounts of money in major championships and they win tournaments, and yet they—a lot of them have turned into babbling fools at the end of a Ryder right. Cup or a Presidents Cup. I mean, they can barely stand up and walk, never mind hit golf shots. It's, it's, it's an extraordinary thing to watch, really. It's yeah, you know, the, the the pressure. Even
2: we didn't don't have it nearly as much as you know playing. We have it over here when we play in front of the US team, you know, but it's not not quite the same as the Ryder Cup. There's not that same sort of no. motivation or animosity or uh, partisanship, whatever, you know, in, in the different countries. And, and the abuse, there's a lot of abuse oh, as well. Oh, yes. But, uh, yes. You know, like I said, you have to be thick
1: skinned. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Nick, Nick I wanted to, to turn, if we can, to your involvement with the USGA. Um, how did that come about, and what was your motivation for getting involved? So Mike Davis and I go pretty much,
2: we go back quite a way. Um, I have a future mutual friend of ours, Hollis Kavner, who, when Mike came down here to Jupiter, um, you know, six, seven years ago, um, we became friends, and we went out for dinner quite a lot, and we bounced, we, we spoke about what was happening with the game, the equipment, and you know, we're, we're, and obviously I've been quite vocal about it. Um, the change that you, we all know there was going to be change in you know in the equipment, but uh, it's come so so rapidly, and it's kind of taken everyone by surprise. But anyway, Mike and I discussed a lot of things, and then one day I don't know it was about four years ago. Yeah, you know, it was the end of eighty. Uh, sorry, two thousand and. 17, he said, would I ever consider being on the USGA executive committee? And at that stage, you know, I had retired from the game. I was still and I still do a lot of corporate uh, golf and outings. And I said, well, you know, uh, let me think about it. And I spoke to my wife and I spoke to some friends about it. And I thought, you know, this would be a nice thing. I asked, you know, how much time it would require and i thought well this would be a really good way of a being able to maybe uh, give something back to the game obviously but also to 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 help i think the usga in a in a situation where you know they they don't they didn't have the greatest reputation in the past of dealing with professional golfers in yeah. the pga tour and and i thought if i could maybe just be a stepping stone or be a go between the two. And so uh, try and explain to them the mindset of the PGA Tour and the players um, and make them understand a little bit. Uh, and there's a, this is a brand new USGA. When I say brand new USGA, this is not the same USGA as we've seen in the past. Mike Davis has done a phenomenal job of, uh, you know, making sh- sure that there's longer terms now in times gone by, you could be on the exec committee for a year and then you wouldn't be invited back on again. Now it's a three-year minimum yeah. commitment, which is great. So we got continuity. Um, the, the, the infrastructure of the actual organization is, is changed dramatically. There's a lot of more, there was a time back whenever that the exec committee would basically outline to the, uh, to the employees and the people, the executives in the USGA, um, that or the full-time employees, that this is, was their job description and this is what they're going to do. Well, it's changed now. The, the, the initiative has now been taken by the guys like John Bodenhammer, mm-hmm. you know, Thomas Pagel, uh, the employees. There's some wonderfully dedicated and incredibly intelligent people there. It's just the way the system was structured, I think, that sort of led it to, uh, I don't know, to be ridiculed for some time. Uh, and and it, it's changed, though. and I'm so happy to be a part of that. And now, obviously, with the equipment and the Distance Insight report that was just uh, released last year and now uh, two days, three days ago, the area of interest as to what the USGA and the RNA are going to do mm-hmm. as an organization – as organizations to – try and, I don't want to say say, draw a line in the sand, but to try and stop this increase, continued increase in distance, because it is destroying the great golf courses that we've all come to love over the years. Uh, There are not many places like Augusta that can just add on you know, 400 yards at the drop of a hat, and you know, it's cost Augusta a lot of money because they've had to buy more land, yeah. Um, and but would you,
1: they've got plenty, let's be honest.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're doing fine, they're doing fine. But I mean, you look at St. Andrews, what do we do with St. Andrews? The yeah. greatest, you know, yeah. probably. I think if you had to ask me one other, you know, place that I if you had to win all four majors, you'd sort of have your dream of where you'd want to win them, you know, you'd say maybe Pebble Beach for the U.S. Open and PGA at Balter's Roll or, uh, you know, and the, and the Open Championship would be St. Andrews. I mean, if I had to win another Open, I would love it. If I'd ever had to have won another Open, I would love to have won one at St. Andrews. And that's not, you know, sort of giving, not giving or crediting Turnberry because I think is a phenomenal golf course. But there's just that aura of St Andrews. Now, what happens if we go to the open? And you know, I don't think it's going to be too long now. You know, we worked it out the other day that with the current, if the conditions at St Andrews are right, where we have a nice summer, it's firm, uh, you have a little bit of a breeze, uh, it's not out of the question that these guys can
1: drive it on seven par fours. Well, St Andrews, I can't get anybody to the RNA to admit to this, of course, but I think they they share my concerns, is that. As you just said, if they get decent weather and some people are going to break sixty, that's
2: that you know, and that'll be you know, that'll be such a sh- shame. I'm not saying that the person hasn't played their tails off to shoot that, but it's 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 on the cards, and there's no way that uh, you know that you can stop that um, with the way that pro- you know the equipment's going. So, but the the big thing I think for everything, John, is that. What people don't understand, and we're not just looking at the elite players of the game. We're not looking at the professionals who are playing the game. We're looking at 18-year-olds who are 10 handicaps and 20-year-olds that are, you know, 15 handicaps that are hitting the ball 320 yards.
1: Hmm.
2: So when you, when you look at club golf, let's say if you look at an example like a daily fee golf course where you have uh, X amount of tee times. Uh, you've got one player in the morning or two players, or one player on each nine um, in the morning and, and and two players on on each nine in the afternoon, there's 14 driving holes on a, on a, on a par 72 golf course, yeah. theoretically, most of them, you know, you have four par threes and, and the rest are all par fours and par five. Now on those 14 holes, if a guy's hitting at 320, he has to wait for the group in front who are probably hitting at Anywhere from 180 to 220 to clear before he hits his tee shot. Okay, so if the par fives were long enough and and, and he couldn't reach the par fives with with the older equipment and the, uh, and suddenly he's now hitting irons to those par fives, he's having to wait literally, you know, a minute and a half to two minutes for the people in front to clear.
1: Mm.
2: So, you know, that adds up to 28 minutes. Uh, and if you don't take into account on a par five, when he's waiting for the green, it might be five minutes. So, you know, that 28 minutes may turn into half an hour. So that's three starting times. If you have 10 minute intervals. Yeah, it's true on each nine. So you have six starting times a day, times that by four, 24 players a day, you are losing. Yeah. So when you have a daily fee or a municipal golf course, that is, and most of them run on, you know, the margins are very, very small. Mm. Suddenly, you take 24 players out of that uh, their tee times each day, and especially you know the weekend. I mean, they, it, it's costing money, yeah. and these guys can't end up surviving. So these golf courses, a lot of the golf courses are not making money. Um, so they basically start selling up for real estate. But then also, you know, you look at, at club golf. Um, you know, it's the same thing. We're getting these rounds and we are seeing these rounds taking longer and longer because if you do have two or three guys that hit the ball prodigious distances, and, and I'm not saying these guys are great players because we've got, you know, three or four youngsters at our club and who hit the ball over 300 yards. And so, you know, they have to keep waiting. So then you look at adding length to the golf courses, you know, how much does that cost? You increase 10%. If you go from, Sixty-eight hundred yards to seventy-four hundred yards. If you've got the the the, the, the land to do it, um, you have a ten percent increment in staff. You have a ten percent increment in um, maintenance the cost of of of, of, do, of buying that. If you do it, the other thing is herbicides, uh, and the and the biggest thing is water. Is you know the water usage, and and I think that's the thing you know. Places like California and over in Arizona in the desert and a lot of places uh, uh, across the U.S. where they don't have a substantial amount of rainfall, um, golf courses use a lot of water. And that's the last thing we need is to have be using more water. Um, and then the other thing that's happened, which I really feel sad about, is that golf has got way too expensive. Mm. It costs so much money now to play golf. And we need to make this, that footprint of golf courses smaller, whatever whatever it takes. We've got to get people you know who don't have wealth, who not coming from you know. Uh, we got to get more blue collar people involved in the game. Uh, it's it's just it's just something that's a problem, uh, and the golf game is not going to grow uh, un- unless we do something about the cost of it. So. You know, this is this is looking at it, and, and I see some of the young players who criticize what the USDA and R&A are trying to do, and whatever. But what I don't understand is that they look at it from you know very insular. You know, they yeah. uh, they're not looking at the big picture. What is it doing? To just give you an example: of what happened. And a lot of people may know this, uh, but uh, 1930, the USGA started keeping records of the ball, and from 1930 to 1996. And I'm, I'm not 100% sure on those dates, but the numbers are pretty much the same. In those uh, 66 years, the ball increased on average per year one foot. So in, in, in that 66 years, the ball went 22 yards further. From 1997 to 2008, that distance doubled again.
0: Yeah.
2: So the ball went 22 yards further in a span of 10 years. So what had taken 66 years was matched in that thing. Now, whose fault is that? You know, or or is it the USDA with whatever? Well, some of their testing methods back whenever may have been questionable. uh, But they're now up to speed. And you know, they're not gonna do anything and the RNA are not gonna do anything until such time as they've crossed all their T's and dotted all their I's. We have all this information with the USGA, with the distance insight, We've seen the impact the impact that it's having on the game globally, um, and you know, you the, the secret is is to try and make change some of the equipment uh, uh, specifications that don't hurt the average player. Yeah, and when I say the average player, I'm not again just saying the elite players are the ones we're targeting. I'm talking about the guys who are hitting the ball a long, long way. Mm-hmm. Um, and like i say that's not just the professional it's not just the amateurs and the college players it's a, there's a cross-section of kids you know and and people who play at an amateur level that's not and don't even compete that are hitting the ball and changing the way you know the game is is going and so that's that's you know my argument on this
1: yeah well you know i bang on about this and i'm completely in agreement with everything you've just said I and mean, certainly at the at the elite level i i, I the younger players seem to think that people that say what we've just said or what we're talking about, they think that we're against them. You know, shooting low scores. It's not the scores that are the problem. It's the it's the way that they play the golf courses. That's the big issue for me. They don't play the courses anything like the way they were designed to be played. And the biggest issue is the at The elite level certainly is the driving. As you if you've touched on, I mean, and again, I use your name um, the, as the one of the examples of people who got a deserved edge from their driving, you and Greg Norman and Ian Woosnam are the three names that I always come up with as guys who separated themselves from their competition. Not totally, obviously, with, with the driving, but it was a big help in how you, in you winning tournaments, the three of you. And now, of course, the, the, if we say that, let's assume that Rory, Ra- Rory McIlroy is the best driver of a golf ball in the world. If he isn't, he's he's pretty close. But he doesn't get the edge that he should get or did or would have got back in the day because the average driver now is so much closer to him than the average driver was to you when you were one of the best drivers i mean that that's been lost I and mean, the art of driving is should be the, almost the hardest thing in golf is, is now almost the easiest for the elite well, players I, I understand exactly what you're saying and you know I, I 100% agree with you because it
2: doesn't matter these days the fairway whether you hit the fairway or not on on, on on everyday tour events, uh, amateur events, whatever it may be, it really doesn't matter whether you hit the fairway or not because you yeah. can still stop and play the ball out of the rough. The hole that was designed to receive a five iron is now, uh, you know, for a second shot is now a nine iron or a wedge for a lot of these guys. And hitting a nine iron and a wedge out of the rough you may not have that same amount of spin that you have hitting it out of the fairway, but you can still hit the ball to a place where you can putt from. In times gone by when you missed the fairway, you were struggling to hit the ball on the green. So I would love to see that come back where fairways, guys who hit fairways are rewarded. That's the big thing for me. So if you can hit it long and straight, so be it. That's, that's fine. But just to freewheel it just because the advantage is to get it you know, uh, thirty yards further down the fairway, and there's very little rough. Then, then you start looking at this is this is not the strategy
1: that most architects wanted the uh, the players to 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 stick to when they played. Yeah, I mean, we're you and I are talking during the tournament that's going on in Saudi Arabia at the moment, and I was watching it on television today. It's the course is seven thousand and ten yards long. Which is short by today's standards for for the pros. And I had to laugh when uh, I listened to Stephen Gallagher's interview after he finished. He shot sixty two, eight under par, and he and he mentioned the sixth hole, which he which he called the the long par four, at, at which he hit an eight eight iron to the green. That was a long par four. <laughs> he <these> states <days. laughs> that made me laugh. I was the <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: well, in theory, you know, um, there's the there's the very few holes. Uh, par fives that are three shotters for these for, for the the amateurs the pros you know if you hit the ball 320 yards or 330 yards um, you know you hit in your three wood another to say 270 so that's 600 yards you know you, you can you can count on your hand how many par fives they are that are uh, played at 600 yards in competitive golf you know, yeah. 580, 590, that seems to be, you know, a long par five these days. And the guys are hitting, a lot of them are hitting irons today. So, you know, uh, but that's to digress back to whatever we, we're talking different about, I think, the distance insight and what's, uh, you know, what's happening with the tour. But, you know, w- w- there's something needs to be done. There's no doubt about it. And, and it, I, I don't think it's going to be like major changes. I don't think that there will be changes made where they just take off 40 yards off the ball. That's not going to do anybody any mm-hmm. good. So there needs to be reward for hitting the ball in the fairway. Uh, there needs to be a little more shot baking coming back into the game. I think, you know, just to, to – the, the, the one thing that I really brought it home to me was about two years ago. I saw the stat on on the tour, and, and this is the first time I think in the history of the game that this has been, been this way, that if you hit the ball 275 to 290 yards on average, the average guy, the median income for that guy on the US tour is like $450,000. Mm. If you go from 290 to 305 yards, that doubles to like 800,000. That yeah. was the number whenever. Yeah. If you go from 305 to 315, you're now in the 1.5, 1.6 million. If you go from 315 beyond, the average of those guys is like three and a half to four million in, in, in earnings. Yeah. So it's the first time where, if a, if a youngster is in college or playing amateur golf and he looks at all these stats, which we all do, he says, Well, you know, uh, I have to hit the ball this far. The college coaches are telling these youngsters coming out of high school, this is how far you have to hit the ball if you want to play on my team and you want to qualify for a scholarship. Yeah. So what does the guy do? He goes straight to the gym. He said "I doesn't care whether he hits it straight or not. He's got to get his club head speed up to, you know, one twenty, you know, high teens, one twenty, one low low one twenties. So he hits the ball three hundred and twenty five, three hundred and twenty, twenty five yards plus. Yeah. So it's a, it's there's a that's what I think is 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 hurt the professional game a little bit. Um, and, and you know we're sort of saying, well, are we ever going to see players like Corey Pavin or Gary Player, who, yeah. by the way, was exceptionally uh, fit um, and worked out as hard as any of these young guys do? Um, but you know, so did Greg Norman, so did Nick Faldo. Um, but they weren't a guy who was long in the fifties or the forties and the fifties and the sixties and the seventies may have been. Eight or ten yards longer or than than you know the average guy. Yeah. Uh, you know th- that was the difference. We played the golf courses the way that they were architecturally designed to play with strategy. Yeah, and I hear um, I hear so, a
1: lot of the younger lads, Nick. They they, they argue that you know the they, they we want to take away the advantage that they get from from long driving. Well, which is nonsense. But there should be an advantage from distance. But it it seems to me now that it's become so disproportionate that it's it's mm-hmm. actually hurting the game at the elite level again.
2: Yeah. I think Dustin Johnson said it best. You know, they asked him, "What do you think of the you know the USGA and the r if they change the rules?" He says, "I don't really care because I'm still going to be one of the longest out there." Yeah, which is a hundred percent right. Yes, you know, exactly. it's a hundred percent right. So you know, um, the the thing is is that how do you take him or let's say bring a guy who hits a two eighty to compete with him on the same sort of golf courses, yeah, you know what I mean. That's right. So that's the thing that we've got to do. It's uh, it's because the, there's no doubt these guys can absolutely overpower a golf course. But uh, anyway, I, I just think it's an interesting time. I think we uh, the, the, the youngsters, um, you, you, no one's trying to take anything away from them at all, um, and and I think that they they will figure out. There's no doubt they will figure out whatever changes. And uh, that uh, the USJ and RNA make to the equipment. Um, th- these guys are the are the best players in the world. They will figure out a way to play it. Yeah, you know, right. they will. It's just like getting a Formula One driver a new car every season. The best drivers are still going to figure out how to drive the car. It doesn't matter what restrictions they put on them. You know, the best drivers are going to win. And so, uh, you know, I, I think they all make a, a huge thing about nothing. You know, the manufacturers are obviously really worried you know, uh, oh, what's going to happen? Well, if they all abide by the same set of rules, which they do today, then I can't see them losing market share or whatever the case may be. So anyway, but it's if it, it will. I think it will be done gradually. I think it will be done with, you know, everything, all the testing facilities and, and the, the testing. Um, uh, it, it'll all be done methodically and it'll be done. It's not going to be rushed and i think every 4 or 5 years it should be reviewed yeah and then changes should be made um, you know equipment manufacturers change their equipment every year so it's to say okay now this is a restriction that you have to do with your ball or the club or whatever it may be and you give them 3 years of lead in time
1: mm-hmm.
2: that's that's plenty yeah. you know so anyway we'll we'll wait and see and see what happens i just you know the usga and the rna are not the enemy No. (laughs) As long as people might think you know, we're not the enemy. We're not we're not doing we're not doing things. We're trying to protect the integrity and the golf of the of the great golf courses. Because it'd be very sad if in twenty years' time or thirty years time, with the current
1: trend that we see, that we would lose so many fantastic golf courses. Well, I've said that too. I mean, where are they going to play? <laughs> That's yeah. a thing. It, yeah. it's, it mystifies me. Uh, anyway, Nick, I, I'm conscious of the fact that you've been incredibly generous with your time, but I have two very quick questions to finish with. Um, I did want to ask you about the um, the 1986 Masters. You had a putt on the 18th green for a 62. That I've, <laughs> I've watched this many times, and uh, how did that ball not go in? Tell me about that.
2: I have no idea.
1: I think it went in at about
2: um you know, it went in it it probably did, it it did a full three sixty. It actually crossed yeah um the line it went in on. So whatever that is, a four fifty or whatever. But um I, I think one of the best comments I ever made, if you don't mind me blowing my own Trump no for no, no, no so You know, when you when you get to the media and you're pretty nervous, especially as I was, you know, I was youngster at those days and the one guy asked me, he said, Well, what do you think happened exactly what you said? You know, how how did that putt stay out? And and I said, Well, I think Bobby Jones's hand came up and said, That's enough, son. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: that's true. Yeah.
2: That was for my tenth birdie of the day. Yeah. And uh but you know, when you putt well, you just the hole looks it looks much bigger than it actually is. You've got great feel and I wasn't gonna leave that one short, that's for
1: sure. No, no. And uh, the very last question is um, you know, we've touched a lot of the your career highlights over the last hour and a bit, but um, I think you should almost certainly go down in history as the man with a little bit of help from your wife, I assume, um, who gave us John Daly <laughs> back in 1991. It was your withdrawal from the PGA Championship that got him in. Yeah.
2: And you know what? It, it, it may have been a matter of time because if it hadn't, if, we, if it hadn't happened to me, and, and he probably would have won a major somewhere down the line. But it, it makes for a great story. And what had happened? My wife was late with our first child, Greg, and we'd, uh, she he was supposed to be born the week before the PGA. And uh, anyway, he late, and the doctor didn't want to induce. He said it wasn't. He wasn't ready. And so on a Tuesday, I phoned up on the afternoon because I wanted a person, you know, who's going to get my replacement, who's going to be replaced me to at least have a practice round. Yeah. And so I phoned up on the Tuesday lunchtime, it was, and I said, listen, I'm out. I, I'm going to have to withdraw. And so uh, the next, about two or three o'clock that afternoon, my phone rang and uh, it was John Daly. And I'd played a couple of practice rounds with him. and You know, this guy, enormous talent. And he said to me, Nick, uh, I'm in the car and I'm driving up. And this was when we, we had those phone. I didn't have one at that time, but the phones in the car, you know. And he would yeah. bought this new truck and he had this phone in the car. <laughs> and there was a hell of a lot of noise going on. He says, "I'm driving up to uh, to Indianapolis or to Indiana, and I, I just want to know are you are you withdrawn?" I said, "Yes, I'm done. I'm done, John." So he said, "Oh, well, that's good. I'm I'm sorry to hear that. You know, but you know." And I said, but listen, you've got to do me a favor. My caddy, Squeaky, is up there, and he's been there for – because he was from Gary, Indiana, which is not too far away. And he'd been up there for like four days, you know, charging the course and whatever, doing all of his homework. And I said, please, John, if you haven't got a caddy, I'll call him and tell him to meet you in the car park, and, you know, you can caddy for him. And he said, that would be great. That would be great. And, of course, Squeaky had only started working for me at the beginning of 91. Mm -hmm. And we had one – We'd won the the Byron Nelson, and we'd had some really nice finishes, and so, so all of a sudden they go and win, and I'm thinking, well, there goes my caddy, you know, he's <laughs> yeah, gonna, of course, going to jump ship on me. Uh, but anyway, he stayed with me, and we had a we had a wonderful time. But you know what a performance that was. I mean, that is, you know, something special.
1: Yeah, I can still remember. Uh, I think every time Daly would get on the tee with his driver, Squeaky only said one thing to him: kill. <laughs>
2: That was it. You know, he, he blew it past all those bunkers, yeah. you know, that were there on the dog legs. And I, I said to Squeak, I said, what was it like? He said, you know, the rest of the field were playing around these bunkers and he just kept blowing them over them. So, you know, that, that was amazing then.
1: Anyway, Nick, as I say, I, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that I've kept you on for a very long time and you've been extremely generous with your time. But uh, I just have to say, it's been a pleasure talking to you again. It's been too long since I've heard your voice.
2: Oh, John, it's been great to catch up, man. And um, thanks again for having me on anytime.
0: Terrific stuff there from Huggy. And what an engaging and level-headed ambassador for the game, Nick Price is. Well, that's it for episode 37. I hope you enjoyed it. And I also hope that you've made the effort to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. If this has been your first visit, there's a terrific back catalogue to work through, which you'll immediately see if you press that subscribe button. Of course, you could also head to the Golf Australia website at golfaustralia.com.au and look under the podcast tab. And make sure to come back in two weeks' time when we'll be sitting down with one of the wily veterans of Australian golf, Matt Miller. Matt is going to join me in the studio later today, and that is a chat that I've been looking forward to for a very long time. That's Matt Miller, next time on The Thing About Golf.